The church of Thessalonica, as many scholars and theologians alike agree, is perhaps the most persecuted of all the churches in the scriptures, comparing them to Corinth and Ephesus and, and many other churches, this is most likely the most persecuted. Now, it doesn't mean the other ones weren't persecuted. It's just this one is perhaps the one that suffered the most persecution. And despite of that persecution, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when, the, when Paul collects uh, money for the church in Jerusalem, this church, along with many others in Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is located, actually gave, and they gave abundantly despite of persecution and despite of facing some type of economic struggle. And again, that's in 2 Corinthians 8. If you want a better picture of what type of persecution the Thessalonians suffered specifically and why, if you read Acts chapter 17, you'll learn that during Paul's second missionary journey, he comes across the, the city of Thessalonica, begins to preach for three straight Sabbaths or three straight Saturdays, and as he's preaching in the temple, there is an uproar by some Jews, as Acts 17 lets us know, who were jealous. So they run Paul out of town, but that's not enough. When they find out that he's preaching in the next town over in Berea, those same Jews in Thessalonica go all the way to Berea, Berea I'm sorry, and also start giving him problems there as well. So the context of this prayer, this passage, this opening of the letter is to a church who is being persecuted for their faith. But it's also a prayer. And we can't miss that. Verses 3 to 12 are the prayer of a pastor who cares. Now, oftentimes we think of Paul as a great preacher or pastor, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We think of Paul as a great missionary, but he was also a praying man. He was a man of prayer. In fact, everyone agrees that 13 of the New Testament books, and by everyone I mean theologians agree, that 13 of the 27 books were written by Paul, the epistles and the, and the pastoral letters by Paul. And in all of these letters, you will find a prayer. In some books, you'll find three to four prayers. We can't not miss this fact that Paul isn't simply a great preacher who rests on knowledge alone. He is a great preacher who also prays. He is a great missionary who also prays. And here we see in the opening of these verses, he is a man who prays for a church under persecution. And so the prayer begins in the form of a thanksgiving. And Paul is thankful and he says in verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, and here referring to brothers and sisters, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, now notice how Paul begins. We ought to always, ought, obligated to. There is no option is what Paul is saying. We ought to is a legal term. We have to always give thanks to you. Now, now why, or not to you, but we ought to always give thanks. And, and, and why? Well, part of it is look at how this church is responding to persecution. So here's some reasons why Paul gives thanks. First, their faith is growing abundantly. 
The word here in Greek, uperausane, is the only time in all of Scripture that this word occurs, especially in the New Testament. It's, it's a, a reference here. It's an agricultural term. So think about this. If anyone's ever done farming or gardening, some type of planting, you, you go and you plant a seed, and then after a while, whatever you planted, your expectation is what? That it grows that it gives fruit. So if you planted tomato seeds, you're expecting tomatoes to, to pop out. The emphasis of this agricultural term is look at how the Thessalonians are giving fruit of the faith that they believe. In other words, it's not simply that the Thessalonians are being persecuted and they're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's not just a verbal reference to, to their allegiance to Christ. But what Paul is going at is something deeper. It's not that they simply refuse to deny Christ with their words. It's that their life reflects that they are serving Christ. They are giving fruit, the fruit of a Christian. They are growing abundantly. The verb is also in a present tense. It's not that they've gotten to the completion or the fulfillment of their growth. So it's not simply that they, they were, they've been growing and they stopped growing. No, they continue to grow in their faith despite of persecution. So here's the picture that's being painted. As persecution increases, their faith in the Lord also increases. It's not decreasing. They're not thinking about leaving the faith as they're being persecuted. The opposite is happening. And if you study church history, you'll see that time and time and time again, when the church went through the most vicious of persecutions, it flourished. As the enemy and emperors locked up Christians, it did not stop the faith from advancing. It actually increased the faith and we see that with the church in Thessalonica but there's another thing another reason why Paul gives thanks not only are they growing abundantly in their faith but notice the language here even in our English Bibles the love of every one of you for one another is increasing the love of every one of you each and every single individual this is not a group greeting or, or, or a group accolade. In other words, Paul is not saying, well, you know, some of you don't love, but the majority does, so I will, I will pray in thankfulness that at least as a church, the majority loves. No, it's not a majority contest. Again, look at the language. Each and every single one of you, each individual person in this church is increasing in love for one another. They don't just have faith in God in the midst of persecution, but as they're being persecuted, they love one another. Now I want you to think about the words of Jesus in Matthew. As evil would rise, Jesus says the heart of many would grow cold. And yet here we see a text that that hearts of many is never a reference to believers. When evil rises, the heart of non-believers grows cold. The heart of those who are not in Christ grows cold. But the Christian, their heart gets tenderer and tenderer and their love for their brothers and sisters gets tenderer and tenderer. They love each and every single one of them increase in love 
for one another. Now think about this. Many of us, if we were arrested for our faith, we'd start dogging one another. No, it wasn't me who believes in Christ. It was brother so-and-so that sits in section A and, and in seat three and row four or whatever. We'd probably dog one another or try to get one person or another person locked up instead of us. But that's not what the church is doing here. Their love for one another is increasing. I hear Christians talk the opposite of this many times. Oh, their, their kids are like that because you should see their marriage. Or, or, or they're going through these struggles because they're not really Christian. And, and we tend to dog each other. But this church, in the midst of persecution, is not dogging one another. They're increasing in love for one another. They genuinely love one another. It is a result of being a believer. Yet notice who the thanks is to, and this is amazing. Paul does not thank the church in Thessalonica. Although he accolades what they're doing, and we'll see this clearly in verse 4, he does not thank them. He does not thank himself or Silas or Timothy, who are referenced in this letter and in the first letter he writes to the Th Thessalonians. He's not referencing himself as a great teacher. Did, did you see? Look at verse 3 again, the beginning. We ought to always give thanks to who? To God for you. Why is the thanks to God? It's the Thessalonians who are doing the work. It's the Thessalonians who on the surface appear to be increasing in faith, and they are, and they are loving one another, each and every single one of them individually, but they do so because of God. The prayer begins with God, and it will end with God. We'll see that when we get to verse 12. This is not an, a great effort by the Thessalonians. Rather, it is the fruit of God working in them. And when God works in the believer, the fruit is evident. We grow in faith and we love dearly one another, care for one another, even in the midst of persecution. In the worst case of scenarios, the believer, because God is working in them, grows in faith and also abounds in love. The whole point of this first part is God is in control. God has this in control. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the work of God. So the thanks goes to God. And then Paul continues, verse 4. He thanks God for them and then says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul gives thanks to God for the work that he's doing in them as we saw in verse 3, but then he boasts about them. He testifies about them, but, but there's this arrogance and it's not a prideful one but in a sense of he's proud of them and he's so proud that he's letting the other churches in the region know so most likely because Paul is writing from Corinth we can automatically assume he's boasting to the Corinthian church about how they are responding to persecution and he's also maybe letting the Ephesian church know as well as we see in other passages where these two churches are mentioned together but the point is He's boasting. That's, that's the, the first clause answers to who. Who is the boast to? It's to 
the churches. It's to other believers. And then what does he boast about? This is the second clause or the second prepositional phrase in this verse 4. He boasts about their steadfastness. He boasts about their faith. And he boasts about their endurance in the midst of persecution. So he's boasting about how they are responding to persecution. And I want you to notice verse 4 quickly. I'm just going to read some words here. Your steadfastness and faith. Your persecutions and and the afflictions that you are enduring. Here's the point that Paul is making. It's their affliction. It's not the church of Corinth's affliction. It's not he who is being afflicted. Now, there are other passages that show that these churches also go through persecution. But Paul is being clear here. This church... The Thessalonian church is the one that's going through this persecution. It is the one that's being afflicted. And yet, they respond with growing faith and love for one another as we saw in verse 3. Now, one form of tribulation in the scriptures is persecution. But the question we have to ask ourselves in the United States is obviously most of us are not being locked up for our faith. And I say this not prophetically, but more of a warning, at least not yet. We don't know how this country will be in a couple of years from now as far as the faith goes, but at least not yet. But here's the emphasis. We all go through some type of tribulation, maybe not persecution, but some type, and we must ask ourselves the question, how do we respond to tribulation? When the notice comes in, when the unexpected news comes in, does our faith increase or does it decrease? Does our love for one another increase or does it decrease? Because if we talk to some of our servers in the parking lot or in the coffee shop, some of you take your weak baggage with you and then you bring it to church so that when the coffee person says, five minutes, you're 30 seconds in and you're going, oh my God, when are they going to give me my latte with, with extra whip and extra this and extra that and, and an Oreo on top? And, and, and we respond in such a way that you could clearly tell someone had a rough week and we take it out on the servers in the church. And yet this church is a prime example that as God works in them, as they're going to tribulation and their tribulation is persecution, They're not letting go of God. Their faith in God increases. It grows abundantly. And their love is not getting colder. It's becoming more increasing. How do we respond to tribulation? That is something that we must ponder about this morning. Verse 5 is the effect of a conditional clause that is stated in verse 6. So for you to understand, normally... What you see is a conditional clause which usually goes like this. If this, then this. Paul gives us the then or the effect, the end result in verse 5 for emphasis so that this could make a little bit more sense. I'm going to read the beginning of verse 6 and this if clause or this first conditional clause ends all the way in verse 10. So I'm going to read the first sentence of verse 6. I'm going to read the ending of verse 10. And then we'll jump back to five so that you can understand what I'm saying. So chapter one, verse six, since indeed God, and I will stop there. 
Everything that Paul will say, this is an if clause or a sense. Sense this, then this. So sense all of these things. And Paul will say a lot. We'll get to that in a second. And I'll just read verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Then, verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The apotesis is what is called in grammar, but the effect of this sense is in verse 5. It comes before, again, for emphasis. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Everything that will be explained from verses 6 through 10, Paul wants us to know God is the judge. He's the one judging. It is a, a subject clause. The subject here is God. It's God's judgment. And here's the adjective that explains how God's judgment takes place. It's a just judgment. It's a righteous judgment. Many of us don't like the idea that God is a God who not only loves but also judges. But this passage doesn't just highlight that God judges. He just judges righteously. It's a just judgment. And those who are judged, why God judges, in part what Paul is saying here is, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, worthy of the kingdom of God is not a means of grace. In other words, It'd be incorrect to say everyone who suffers for the name of Christ automatically is saved. All of these Thessalonians who were persecuted, that means that they were saved. No, it's not a means of grace. It's not something that we do to be saved. Rather, the idea here is they're worthy of the kingdom of heaven because how they respond in the midst of persecution has revealed that they are saved. To put it another way, being persecuted doesn't guarantee salvation. But how we respond to persecution in the case of the Thessalonians reveals that one has been saved. That is the idea here in verse 5. This righteous judgment of God will be repeated in these next few verses, but it's also a response to a worry in the letter. The Thessalonians believe that because they are being persecuted that they are experiencing the day of the Lord the judgment of God. And Paul will be clear that that's not the case. And he clarifies this in chapter 2. Just look with me really quick to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 and 2, so you can get an idea of what Paul is doing in the introduction. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. And I'm going to stop right there. Many Thessalonians were being taught that they were experiencing the day of wrath, the judgment of God. And Paul makes clear, no, you are not in the judgment of God. It is a worry in the first letter to the Thessalonians, and it will continue to be a worry. And Paul will continue to clarify that they are not being judged by God, despite of being persecuted. And so this is a response that the just judgment of God has not yet come, but it will come. That's the point. 
So when it comes, this is what we see will happen. Verse 6 and 7, since indeed God considers it just, we see it again, a reference to verse 5, since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. And I will stop right there. Verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7 reveal a truth to the Thessalonian church. This is the comfort that they should find in the midst of persecution. Since, again, this is an introduction to a conditional clause. Since this, then this, and it is assumed that all these things will occur. And here's what Paul says, plain and simple, verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Those who are afflicting will be afflicted and those who are experiencing affliction will find relief, or the literal translation, will find rest. To put it another way, the, those who are the afflictors, who are afflicting the church in Thessalonica, will one day be afflicted. They will be repaid by what they are doing. And who will do the repaying? Verse 6 is clear. God. God considers it just to repay the, those who are afflicting the Thessalonian church with affliction. This is the comfort that the church should find. And then in verse 7, and those who are currently on this earth, and this a reference specifically to the church of Thessalonica, those who are currently being persecuted will find rest. Now notice what Paul does not say. I always like to highlight what Paul does not say. He does not say the rest will come here on earth. Paul does not write a book called Your Best Life Now or Your Best is Yet to Come. The relief is not on earth. In other words, nowhere in Scripture are we to find joy in earthly release. An earthly relief, I'm sorry. Nowhere in scriptures when you find passages of tribulation, passages of grave persecution, does Paul or Jesus or even the Old Testament prophets, as we saw last week, rise up and say, don't worry, there are better days ahead. Don't worry, your better life is coming. That's not what they do. What do they do? They remind us that even if relief doesn't come on this earth, we will have eternity of relief in Christ if we remain faithful. This is the point that it's not comforting for us to find relief. Now, if it comes on earth, great. If you live a good life here, great. But if you don't, great, because you're a Christian and this life is temporary. The majority of us, we, we might have a short lifespan or a long lifespan, but the life here on earth will end. And what Paul reminds this church is, Hey, I don't know if persecution is going to stop, but what I do know is when he returns, it will stop. When Christ comes back, it will end. And that's why he makes it clear in the second part of verse 7. When will the affliction rest? It's not on earth. The, the verse continues in verse 7, to grant you relief those who are afflicted as well as to us. Paul making reference here that he too will see them in eternity and then he says, when will this happen? It's temporal. Paul is telling us, when will this occur? Again, it's not on earth. It's not in a couple of years. 
It's when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. When will the relief come? When Christ returns. Verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 represent Christ as the ultimate authority from heaven. A reminder, when Paul ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he tells the church, just as you have seen me go up, you will see me return. It's a reminder that as as Jesus had said, he ascended, he would return, but it's also from heaven, a reminder of what we've been learning in the Gospel of, of John, that Christ is the ruler of heaven because he is God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's speaking of Christ's authority as judge. Again, a reference to verse 5, God's just judgment includes the repayment of those who are afflicting the Thessalonian church, but it also includes Christ as judge, as ruler. It's from heaven. He comes with his mighty angels. Again, Christ is in charge of all the heavenly armies. He's coming with his mighty angels. It's a sign of authority, and he comes in flaming fire. If you're taking notes, you can write down Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15. This is what Paul is referencing here, and I'll just read it to you quickly for the sake of time. Here's what it says. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. This just judgment of God that comes at the end of time is a just judgment, but we cannot miss the theology here. It's not just that it comes when Christ returns, but Christ is the means or the instrument of God's just judgment. Now, in our culture, we have two prevailing images of Christ. Christ on my golden chain or Christ hung on the hospital beds of many hospitals or Christ tattooed on my skin on the cross. Our culture loves the Christ who is on the cross dead and they forget that he rose in three days and is no longer on the cross. And yet so many people walk around with crosses around their neck as if that represents anything. It does not. And so our culture is enamored with a dead Christ and we forget that yes, his crucifixion and, crucifixion and his death did something for us, but he also rose. He's not dead. He's alive and he's reigning in heaven and one day he will come to bring judgment to those on earth. But it's also a contrast to another Jesus in our culture. What I like to call tickle me Jesus. You tickle him, he, 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 oh, Jesus, he's, he's a funny guy. He's Jesus, my homeboy, and, and people walk around with Jesus, my homeboy shirts, or genie Jesus. Rub your Bible three times, and he'll grant you three wishes. And I'm not saying that Christ isn't loving, and I'm not saying that Christ is not presented as our friend, but what our culture has forgotten is that Christ is also judge. And God's just judgment will not be God the Father who judges. That same loving Christ 
that all of us love and adore the one who gave his life for us is also the one that will bring judgment. And the passage shifts. We already know that in this context, those who are persecuting the Thessalonian church specifically will be judged. Again, the afflictors will be afflicted. But now the passage moves to a general sense of judgment. It's not referencing those in Thessalonica alone, but rather a general statement. Verse 8, he comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Again, who is the one inflicting vengeance? It is Christ. We must know this. On who? On those who do not know God, number one, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's a general statement. Paul shifts from specifically addressing the afflictors who are afflicting the church in Thessalonica and gives a general statement about everyone else who will be judged during this time and in any other time. And Paul says those who do not know God, briefly what comes to mind is atheists, those who refuse to acknowledge God, those who say there is no God. Where is the evidence of God? I don't believe in God and those who practice other religions, who do not know God, who know other gods, who worship other deities. This is the first category of those who will be judged, those who do not know God. And yet, this phrase, as general as it is, the second one is general, but it hits closer to home. Those who do not obey God. Now here the idea is they know about God, they've heard about God, they come to church because they know about God, and yet the sin here is they do not obey God. Now not much more needs to be said. A simple question would suffice. As you sit here this morning, are you someone who obeys the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If not, the simple fact of sitting here will not save you. Paul is clear here that Christ will judge those not who sat in church. No, those are not the ones who, who get saved from this judgment, but rather the ones who obey God get saved from this judgment. Do we, as professing Christians, obey God. That is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Now look at the judgment. It's severe. This is loving Jesus, by the way. This is the Jesus who saved us. And, and we can't split Jesus up to our liking. This is who Christ is. The loving Jesus is also a Jesus of righteous judgment. Now verse 9 reveals the type of punishment, the coming of the, uh, sorry, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, I was reading chapter 2, verse 9, uh, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. They will suffer the judgment, is the literal translation. Again, a reference to verse 5. Those who suffer, suffer justly. They suffer righteously. It's part of God's judgment. Now notice what the text says. It's an eternal suffering. For those of you that came to our Wednesday studies on hell, you'll remember we touched on two points, and this passage makes that clear, that 
people who go to hell don't get annihilated. It's not an idea of poop, you disappear and that's it. No, it's an eternal punishment. Day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished eternally. It's eternal. It's also not this idea of they will suffer punishment for a certain time and then they'll be let out. What the doctrine of purgatory teaches. No, Paul is clear here. This punishment is just and it is also eternal. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 3 verse 12. It's an unquenchable fire, a fire that never ceases. It's a, as Matthew 25 41 calls it, an eternal fire. It's an ongoing punishment and yet you and I may not like it. You and I may say, well that's not fair, but again the emphasis is clear here. It's a fair punishment. It's a just punishment. The wrath of God afflicted through Christ or the just judgment of God is righteous. It is just. Verse 10, again, lets us or reminds us when this will happen. It's an answer to what the Thessalonians are worried about as far as the day of the Lord. Again, a reference. When he comes on that day, now, the first when he comes is an address to the non-believers. Here, an address to the believers, to what I hope would be you and I. This is the comfort of the passage. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believe. Here's the, the distinction again, the contrast from verse 9 and verse 10. In verse 9, it's an eternal punishment, and those who are eternally punished will be away from the face of God. That's the literal translation. Or the presence of God. In verse 9, they will not experience the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the believer, when he comes, on that day, will not simply be relieved, in this case, from persecution. In our case, maybe earthly suffering or tribulation. It's not simply that. It's we will be glorified. What Paul and other passages say, we will get a new body. But it's more than that. We will be in awe. Why will we be in awe? Because we will see Him face to phase. The non-believer will not see the glory of God. The believer will be in awe because we see the glory of God. It's why the angels scream day and night, holy, 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 because that is a proper response to a holy God. It's worship. Our response will be awe. It will be worship. So the passage moves from God has the Thessalonian church, and that's why they can give fruit in the midst of persecution. And it's also an eschatological hope. Not only does God have their fruit, but he's also the one who will relieve them from them when Christ returns. God has their fruit. God has their current suffering. But then we get to verse 11, and I love how Paul addresses this. To this end, or another translation, with this in mind, we always pray for you. With what in mind? 
with everything that I just explained from verses 3 to 10. With this in mind, Paul says, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now notice this. God is the one who gives fruit. God is the one who will relieve them. And God is the one who gives them their power. It is the reason why, and, and these phrases here, to fulfill every resolve for good, the idea here, completion, what God started with them in verse 3, he hopes to accomplish, to fulfill, to complete in this prayer in verse 11. Their resolve for good. That is, that their intentions to do good are there. So Paul wants to complete the intentions of the Thessalonian church to do good. But it's not simply to do good. They don't just desire. They have works of faith. In other words, they have actions of faith. They have actions that reveal that this group of Thessalonians church, of the Thessalonian church that we saw in verse 3 is a group that is not simply growing in faith, but they do works of faith. It is not that we are saved by works of faith, but rather, again, an evidence, the making of the worthy of his calling is a reference here that those who have been saved do good deeds. And here it is clear. Why do they do good deeds? Why do they have these good desires in the midst of persecution? The end of verse 11, by his power. Again, the maturity that is produced in this Thessalonian church is because of God. But it's not simply that their faith increases because of God and their love increases because of God. Their works of faith and their desires to do good are acted upon because of God, because of his power. Let us never be arrogant and say in our heart of hearts, did you see what I did? Christmas, did you see what I did? I went under the the, the bridges in downtown, and I gave clothing. I did, I did, I did. No, we didn't do nothing. Everything that we do is by his power. Even the good acts that we do that we want to take credit for are by his power. The glory goes to God, and Paul makes this clear in verse 12. With all of this in mind, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of Paul's prayer, that Christ's name would be glorified and that his name would be glorified in them. How? According to their works, according to their faith. I love the ESV translation is spot on here. According to the grace of God. Final point here. Salvation not only begins with grace, as we learned in briefly in the scripture reading from eternity past. It's not just the beginning of our salvation process. It's also not just simply the thing that sustains us during our salvation process. It is the assurance of our salvation. Grace for many of us simply is, oh, I'm saved by grace, the beginning. But Paul makes it clear here, not only are we 
saved by grace, but we are sustained by grace. The assurance of our salvation is because of grace. To put it another way, grace is not just the start line of the Christian faith. It is also the finish line. Without grace, you and I cannot be saved. Without grace, you and I cannot live with fruits of being saved. And without grace, you and I will not see our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. To put it another way, when we get to John's uh, prayer that Jesus gives there, whom the Father has given in Jesus' hand, no one can snatch away. We are assured of our salvation, those who are in Christ, and we are assured because it is according to grace. As the famous hymn says, and I'll end with this, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. As long as Christ is on the throne, we are, according to grace, assured of our salvation. I want you to stand and I want you to close your eyes with me. And let us pray together. Father, with this in mind, I pray this morning, we pray this morning, that you are a just judge who will bring affliction on those who do not know you. You are a just judge who will save those who do know you. You are the judge who, according to grace, not only allows us to grow in faith and in love, but who, according to grace, allows us to have desires to do good, allows us to do works of faith, but more importantly, because of your great grace, we are assured of our salvation. Lord, let us walk out of these doors with great joy in our hearts that despite of what we may be facing, we know that at the end, you will bring rest and you will save your children. We thank you, Lord, and we exalt you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.